This podcast is a production of the Ephesus School Network. Then the voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, Go, take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, Take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And I was told, You must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. Revelation 10, 8-11 you are listening to the Tell Me the Story podcast with your hosts, Blaze Webster and Rowdy Wind. Join us as we engage in a complete read-through of the Holy Scriptures, parsing out the original languages with one question in mind. What is the story? Circumcision is probably the most controversial covenant in the entire scriptural story. From the outset of the Common Era, the implications of this covenant for the Gentile world was the primary basis for the rift that would eventually split Pharisaical Judaism into two major groups, those of the Pauline persuasion, which would evolve into uh, Christianity, and those of the Jerusalemite persuasion, which would evolve into Rabbinical Judaism. Now, there's obviously nuance to this, which I will get into, so you know this isn't an invitation to be anti-Jew. I don't want that to be the takeaway, and I'll talk about that more later. Um, But the point is that this covenant became more of a symbol of division rather than unity, Uh, the unity of which, as we will see, was the original purpose. So why did this unfortunate bastardization of circumcision occur? And more importantly, why is circumcision seen as so critical in the Old Testament, but seemingly bypassed in the New? Is this even a fair question? Is there even a dichotomy between circumcision in Genesis and circumcision in Paul's writings? Today, we're going to explore that question, not by attempting to justify how our religious traditions have treated this issue, but by how it functions in the story being told. Only then can we hope to answer this controversial but highly important conundrum. And with that being said, I do want to offer a brief trigger warning for those who may be uncomfortable talking about genitalia. If you are a regular listener of the podcast, you are probably familiar with our tendency to go into great detail to help explain the subject matter at hand, all in the interest of uncovering the story, which was meant for our ears. Well, with a topic such as the one we are covering today, the details that we will be uncovering are indeed of a sensitive variety. Of course, we won't be needlessly vulgar, but we also won't skirt around the issue in order to play nice, because we want to speak plainly so that we are being responsible with the matter at hand, which is the scriptural story. And more specifically, the matter of circumcision in the biblical story, because circumcision is far-reaching. It's one of those things that's not just a part of the story, but is something that should control the very way that we live our lives. But if we mishear it, then we will be misguided 
like the Judaizers of the New Testament. But we'll get into that shortly enough. But again, this is a trigger warning, like I said. So if this is something that makes you extremely uncomfortable, uh, debilitatingly uncomfortable, then of course I would recommend you probably skip this episode. Um, We will undoubtedly cover this topic in a much more general and uh, less detailed way somewhere down the line because, uh, like I said, it's something that comes up over and over again in Scripture uh, as the sign of your obedience to God. But without further ado, let's begin our reading. So we are starting today in Genesis 17, verse 9. And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. Okay, so that's the covenant of circumcision. The first thing we must do in order to determine how this is to function is to pay attention to when this covenant is appearing. This is right after God has promised once and for all that Abram will have mighty progeny. This is illustrated by his name change to Abraham. And how fitting is it that God will instantly command that Abraham be emasculated as a result? And not only him, but every male of his seed after him. And if you think that emasculation is too strong a term for circumcision, keep in mind that there are some historians who have postulated that circumcision began as a less extreme form of emasculating their captured enemies. So in other words, instead of castration, which would likely have been fatal in ancient times, victors would opt for circumcision. So it would leave a lasting mark, right? Their their captured enemies would have to live with that shame and humiliation. It's a, more of a punishment than just outright killing them. Now, of course, you know, I'm not saying that Abraham is God's enemy, but he is his slave, right? So that, that imagery is fitting. And this cutting of the covenant, or karat barit, is essentially the solidification of that slavery uh, and a complete submission to God. Again, that's another militaristic image. You know, in the ancient Near East, that karat barit would happen, the making of the, of the covenant would happen when a larger power would take over a smaller power and make that smaller power, uh, you know, the vassal of the, the larger kingdom. You know, and there were stipulations upon that rule. And one of the stipulations was complete submission to uh, the one who has captured you, right? That's the meaning of, uh, of the word Islam, you know, for the Arabic religion. One who, uh, one who <laughs> literally submits a, as, as a warrior would, putting down the, uh, the weapon and uh, submitting to the, uh, the higher authority. 
And so this is essentially what is going on here. Uh, so we shouldn't shy away from the fact that this is a humiliating and painful procedure, and even more so back then, right? You know, there you know, weren't any, uh, any good ways to numb the pain, you know. Liquor you up maybe, but, you know, nothing, uh, nothing as good as, uh, as modern medicine. It's an obvious belittlement of this previously lofty Mesopotamian character we had in Abram. Well, now Abram no longer exists in the story. It's Abraham, right? So not only has his name changed, his entire function has changed in the story. So we need to pay attention of that. Yeah, before this passage, anytime we as the hearers of the original text heard the phrase karat barit, or cut a covenant, we would have been immediately reminded of the cutting in half of the animals when Abram uh, was caused to fall asleep as God walked through the animals, signifying his keeping of covenant, God's keeping of covenant, the covenant being the inheritance of the land of Canaan for Abram and his offspring. However, here it is not Abram, but Abraham, remember the father of mercy or the father of the emaciated lamb, who is cutting the basar arlathkim, the flesh of the foreskin, which is his keeping of covenant. And not only is this painful and belittling, like you said, Rowdy, this procedure entails the cutting of the tip of the male sexual organ, thus unmestakably making the point that El Shaddai is in complete control of Abraham's seed. In fact, this is illustrating that not only does God have control over Abraham's seed, it is God himself who will be the seed bearer. He will be the one who will decide to open or close the wombs of the women in this genealogy, and none of it has anything to do with the male sexual input. And yes, that pun is intended. This is the case in the scriptural narrative all the way from Abraham to Zechariah and Joseph in the New Testament. These are all de facto emasculated men. This is very impressive. Like I think of that icon of the nativity where Joseph is, you know, he looks kind of depressed, you know, and he's kind of off to the side. There's not a lot of uh, emphasis on him. Um, you know, th that's, that's making a point. It's making a point that uh, that Joseph had nothing to do with the conception of Jesus, right? That's uh, that's kind of a trademark of Eastern art of Joseph, and just the Eastern uh, aura around Joseph is is very much this diminished role that he has uh, because he's he's uh, really in the story not. A big deal. So, you know, Eastern Christians don't make a big deal out of Joseph for that reason. But, you know, but but anyway, that's kind of a side tangent. But um, you know, that that reminds me very very clearly of what we see uh, happening to these men. I mean, it's it's very impressive when we not only realize this text in context, but within the totality of Scripture, we quickly realize that. This is really all this possibly could be meaning and signifying, right? The timing of this covenant with the promise of progeny is simply too evocative for this to be something akin to, I don't know, like promoting hygiene or something silly to that effect, which, goodness, I hear that all too often. 
there are ways, guys, <laughs> there are ways to clean yourself without mutilating your body, right? It, it's not necessary to have, you know, clean lower regions. No, no, this is a power move by God. You know, it's nothing more, nothing less than that. And yes, yes, I am aware that circumcision was widely practiced in Egypt and the Middle East, still is today, uh, for apparently hygienic reasons, probably originally before it was inserted into religion. But we have to remember the literary function is supreme here. You know, not necessarily what took place historically. So we have to make that divide, that distinction in our head. Exactly. And, and there's a glaring detail that shouldn't be overlooked here. This passage is an institution of covenantal circumcision. We get that. However, the authors are very clever because the description we get is that the covenantal sign for Abraham and his household is a circumcision of the foreskin. The immediate assumption then is that this is the foreskin of the penis, but there is no mention of a penis. It does not say you shall cut off the foreskin of your penis. Now, I'm not saying that the authors were intending for any other interpretation. I totally acknowledge that the allusion to the foreskin of the male organ is obvious. But the authors chose not to include the word shofkah for penis. In fact, this sparked my curiosity. And after doing some research, I learned that the only time that this word is used in the entire Old Testament, it's one occurrence, is in Deuteronomy 23 verse 1, where it says, No one who has a penis which is bruised or cut may enter the assembly of the Lord. Some translations have the word uh, testicles or just male organ. Uh, it's vague, but... The word means penis. You can't get around it. If you look into the etymology of it, it gets a little bit more clear, but I don't want to waste your time today. Now, the verbiage is slightly different here in, in chapter 17 of Genesis, but hopefully you see the paradox, right? This is an obvious contradiction with the mul or namal, the circumcision of the foreskin in Abraham's covenant. I don't mean to say that Deuteronomy 23.1 and the practice of circumcision are describing the exact same phenomenon, but it's clear if you hear both of these instances that Deuteronomy reflects an attitude of rejection toward any mutilation of the male organ, while circumcision obviously favors it. So at the very least, the scriptural covenantal perspective of circumcision seems to not exclusively refer to the act of cutting the flesh of the penis. What's more is that Deuteronomy is also the first book where we hear about this concept of circumcision of the heart. In fact, the first occurrence of the word circumcision is in chapter 10, where it says, And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord, which I am commanding you today for your good? Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens, the earth with all that is in it. Yet the Lord set his heart in love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them, you above all peoples as you are this day. Circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who is not partial and takes no bribe. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Love the sojourner. Therefore, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. You shall fear the Lord your God. You shall serve him and hold fast to him. And by his name you shall swear. He is your praise. He is your God who has done for you these great and terrifying things that your eyes have seen. Your fathers went down to Egypt 70 persons 
and now the Lord your God has made you as numerous as the stars of heaven. We hear that God is in control of the progeny, right? It's right there in that passage. He says that he controls their father's offspring. He chose their offspring. That progeny is marked by circumcision. But this passage in Genesis 17 is a mashal. It's a story to provide an example for the true matter at hand, which is the spirit of the covenant that reaches beyond the cultural context of circumcision to each and every hearer of scripture, you and me included. That spirit of the covenant, what lies behind the story, is what is at the heart of that passage from Deuteronomy 10. The heart must be circumcised. We must undergo the painful process of cutting off the flesh of our heart so that God's control over our heart is an inescapable reality, just like the removal of the foreskin is an inescapable reality, right? You can't go back. When it's done, it's done. The covenantal circumcision is a requirement for a group of people in the Toraic Mashal. And in Joshua, the generation of Israelites permitted entry to the promised land are circumcised, since those who were circumcised already died in the wilderness, and those who were not were never circumcised in the wilderness. After this, we get no mention of circumcision at all until the prophet Jeremiah, where again the circumcision is a matter of the heart. Here, Jeremiah 4.4, Circumcise yourselves to the Lord. Remove the foreskin of your hearts, O men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem, lest my wrath go forth like fire and burn with none to quench it because of the evil of your deeds. And to top it all off, please remember that the circumcision is a sign of the covenant. It is not the covenant. The covenant being established here is that Abram is being made into Abraham, the father of mercy or the father of the emaciated lamb, if you heard our episode last week, who will be the father of a multitude of nations. The sign of this covenant is what indicates who is a son of this father, which is determined by them being circumcised or uncircumcised. And according to Jeremiah 9, 23 through 26, God is not looking at the penis. Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will punish all those who are circumcised merely in the flesh, Egypt, Judah, Edom, the sons of Ammon, Moab, and all who dwell in the desert, who cut the corners of their hair. For all these nations are uncircumcised, and all the house of Israel are uncircumcised in heart. And while these examples surely suffice to detail the point, I want to mention a few other examples of the uses of the two different words for circumcised in the Old Testament, uh, because very interestingly, they are not referring to circumcision at all. At least we English speakers wouldn't think so anyway. But let me read you these Meshalim, and you will hopefully see the total meaning of the two words, which are mul and the mal. They're probably, you know, in fact, the same word in slightly different forms, um, but according to some lexicons, they are different words. So I won't bother pointing out which is which in these examples, um, but in this passage in Genesis uh, that we read today, both instances are used in the institution of the covenant. So our first reading is from Job 14. It says, Man who was born of a woman is few of days and full of trouble. He comes out like a flower and is cut off. He flees like a shadow and does not continue. Psalm 58 says, Do you indeed decree what is right, you gods? Do you judge the children of man uprightly? 
No, in your hearts you devise wrongs. Your hands deal out violence on the earth. The wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray from birth, speaking lies. They have venom like the venom of a serpent, like the deaf adder that stops its ear, so that it does not hear the voice of charmers or of the cunning enchanter. O God, break the teeth in their mouths. Tear out the fangs of the young lions, O Lord. Let them vanish like water that runs away. When he aims his arrows, let them be cut off. Let them be like the snail that dissolves into slime, like the stillborn child who never sees the sun. Sooner than your pots can feel the heat of thorns, whether green or ablaze, may he sweep them away. The righteous will rejoice when he sees the vengeance. He will bathe his feet in the blood of the wicked. Mankind will say, surely there is a reward for the righteous. Surely there is a God who judges on earth. Psalm 90 says, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting you are God. You return man to dust and say, Return, O children of man, for a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away as with a flood. They are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed. In the evening it fades and is cut off. Psalm 118. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Let Israel say his steadfast love endures forever. Let the house of Aaron say his steadfast love endures forever. Let those who fear the Lord say his steadfast love endures forever. Out of my distress I called on the Lord. The Lord answered me and set me free. The Lord is on my side, I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is on my side as my helper. I shall look in triumph on those who hate me. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. All nations surrounded me. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surrounded me, surrounded me on every side. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surrounded me like bees. They went out like a fire among thorns. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. I was pushed hard so that I was falling, but the Lord helped me. So what is on display here in these passages is the futility of physical living beings. The grass grows and it is cut down. The unrighteous nations that pursue the righteous nations are cut off. The flower grows and it is cut down. This is the foreskin of flesh and why the covenant of circumcision is so important. Circumcision, as we've seen and will continue to elaborate on, is all about removing the futile, fading, unrighteous part of the self and submitting to the one thing above it all, God. Even in the Old Testament, it's not circumcision of the flesh, but circumcision of the heart that is important for those who are physically circumcised as well as those who aren't, right? And if you don't believe me, I mean, Rowdy's already kind of gone over this, but if you don't believe me, I mean, outside of the five books of Moses and the book of Joshua, it's only mentioned twice in Jeremiah and that's it, okay? It doesn't show up in any of the wisdom literature and it's completely absent from the original Hebrew corpus of scripture. It only resurfaces in the Old Testament with the arrival of the Septuagint with 1st Maccabees, but 
There, it's it's different though. It's it's written of in a negative context. What is even more striking is that in Jeremiah and Ezekiel, when those prophets are writing about the eschatological covenant to succeed that which was made at Sinai, circumcision doesn't even make an appearance. Rather, it's obedience to God's law, which is the criterion. And that obedience is precisely what is meant by circumcision of the heart, because in the ancient Near East, the heart was the seed of the intellect. This is why Paul has no problem saying what he does in Romans 2.29. A Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, right? Not by the letter. In other words, physical circumcision was never meant to be imposed on everyone. Its purpose in Genesis is to belittle Abraham and his male descendants by proclaiming boldly that God is in control of all his progeny. It's also meant to be an invitation to all the males who may enter into this covenant to submit to God's sovereignty, to literally emasculate yourself before the Lord. It reminds me of what Jesus says in Matthew 19:12. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. But we see very quickly how this was abused by the children of Jacob in Genesis 34, when Simeon and his brother Levi invite the Shechemites into the covenant only to slaughter them for revenge, right? They uh, defiled or, um, you know, less PC, they, they raped uh, their sister. This is reflected in the first book of Maccabees when the sons of Metathias forcibly circumcised the, the Hellenized Jewish boys for the sake of preserving this outward Jewish identity. Again, you have to remember the words of Paul. A real Jew is not one who is a Jew outwardly, and circumcision is not one that is outward circumcision. It's circumcision inwardly of the heart. Look, Paul is not making this up, nor is he betraying his own Jewish tradition. This is at the heart of the Jewish scriptures, just as Rowdy demonstrated earlier. So the bottom line is that circumcision in the flesh alone is, is not and never was a sign of righteousness. Only circumcision of the heart, which is obedience to God's Torah. I just want to quickly add that this by no means is saying that circumcision or is bad or that the New Testament and Paul are anti-circumcision. Right? If you read his letter to the Romans, he clarifies that this is not what he's saying. Rather, he is saying over and over again that these outward marks of obedience do you no good if you are not inwardly obedient. Therefore, it's wrong to, to gatekeep the community of God based on outward appearances. Yes, even circumcision. That's all it means, guys. It means that you can't determine who's really a follower of God by something as superficial as an extra piece of skin on their genitalia. 
right? But this is what Paul's opponents were doing, okay? This is what Paul is fighting against. He's not fighting against circumcision itself. I mean, in, in the book of Acts, Paul circumcises Timothy, okay? So clearly Paul is not anti-circumcision, okay? He's anti-forcing others to be circumcised for the outward appearance of the Judaism that you constructed, right? That's the problem. Because look, Paul was well-versed in the entire Old Testament corpus. He knew from what he read and heard that God is not concerned with anything external, right? Read the prophets. Heck, just the book of Isaiah. And you'll see quickly that sacrifices and incense and appointed feasts are an abomination to the sight of God if those worshipers are not taking care of the needy neighbor. God is not like the false gods of the nations who require liturgy from the followers, who require a temple. I mean, this is what we make God into, but if you actually read the Bible, it's very clearly the opposite. What God requires is not liturgy, but taking care of his sheep. Okay, I, I, I hope this gives you a clearer picture as to what's going on with Paul, because I know from my own learning, I know from experience that this is a kind of a confusing issue. But it's only confusing because people have a tendency to make appearances and call it a day rather than reforming the innermost parts of their soul, as in to actually change their thoughts and behavior. Circumcision is just a part of this, okay? It's not a big deal on its own. It's not. It's part of a larger whole, and that whole is simply the wholesale obedience to God's instruction, which is foundationally built first and foremost on not your own spiritual journey, okay? This isn't the, the path to, uh, to moksha, in like an Eastern religious sense. No, this is not about you. It's about how you treat those around you. It's about the care of the needy neighbor. 1.2, just to be clear, as I said in the intro, I'm not making this point to be anti-Jewish, okay? Look, these topics are very sensitive, so I just want to make it clear that in no way am I trying to slam dunk Judaism or debunk anybody's faith or tradition. In fact, the teachings of modern rabbinical Judaism, which is built upon not only the Tanakh, which is the Old Testament for Christians, but the Talmud as well, make it abundantly clear that Gentiles are not bound to circumcision. It's not to be forced upon them. Jews should be circumcised. Gentiles don't have to. Gentiles are only subjected to the covenant of Noah. Again, I don't see where Paul would disagree with this. Because it's not like these rabbis of the Talmud are trying to force people to be Jews or to force them to be circumcised. In fact, that's not at all what they do, you know, except for maybe some extreme cases. Most, the vast majority of, of uh, rabbinical Jews... Don't proselytize and don't try to make people Jews, okay? Because that's improper. You're not, you're not supposed to impose. They they learn this from the Old Testament, guys. 
you're not supposed to impose your own traditions and your own customs onto others simply God's Torah which is expressed through his love and not through the written letter here's the deal the the modern rabbinical Jewish idea from the Talmud you know again I don't see where Paul would would have a problem with with it at least on a superficial level again we I mean we, we have to make a distinction between the Jerusalemite Jews who were Paul's opponents and the Judaism that was molded by centuries of Talmudic teaching long after the fact, right? I bring this up only because it's in our nature as humans to be tribal and to identify differences, whereas the Pauline gospel would rather see us share a common table fellowship. Okay? Again, this has nothing to do... I'm going to say it over and over again because... I know how many times I say it, somebody's going to hear it the wrong way. This has nothing to do with, with saying that circumcision is bad or should be discouraged. Look, the United States is kind of an anomaly, but outside of it, the rest of the Western world has historically been foreign to circumcision, as are the Latins, the Greeks, and the Russians. Therefore, you're not likely to see circumcision much historically with Roman Catholics, the Eastern Orthodox, or Protestants. But if you go more Semitic to the realm of the Oriental Orthodox Christians, there you will see circumcision prominently in practice because it's the cultural norm among Semites, as it is with the Jews, obviously, and also Muslims. This is not the issue, and, and these Christians are not Judaizers, as some have abhorrently claimed. The only issue that could arise here is if an Ethiopian Christian or a Jew or a Muslim refused to have table fellowship with a European strictly on the basis of the foreskin on the European's penis, okay? That's the problem, and that's what Paul encountered. That is what he means by the quote-unquote circumcision party, okay? It's those who wish to force the Gentiles to be circumcised in order to break bread with them okay those are the opponents not modern jews so please let's not use this as uh as a license as many 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 christians historically and shamefully have done over the centuries uh, to persecute jews um who have nothing to do with this argument um anyway it's just a perennial issue so I feel compelled to bring it up. And there is one last brief yet poignant detail that I think we should point out, and that is the almost humorous decree by God at the end of this passage. In verse 14, it says, Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. Interestingly, in the Hebrew, the, the word used for God cutting off the uncircumcised is different than the word used uh, for cutting the flesh of the foreskin, which I uh, talked about earlier when we went through those different passages of the Old Testament. The word used is the word used to cut a covenant, which we also mentioned earlier, that, that word karat. It's more vigorous, uh, more intense of a cutting. Anyone who fails to cut off this part of themselves will be cut off by God. Remember that passage in Jeremiah where God declares that he will punish both parties. 
the uncircumcised, and the uncircumcised of heart, because it is God who controls the definition of circumcision. And if we are hearing scripture, we will know that the permanent definition is not a matter of the literal foreskin, but the foreskin of the heart. Please, dear siblings, always remember the concept of mashal. It is an example to change the way we think so that we will be in submission to the God of the story, the one true God. And that's why, Rowdy, circumcision is so misunderstood and why Paul had such a hard time defending the orthodox and scriptural understanding of circumcision's function. Because ironically, people seemingly would rather mutilate their genitals rather than actually change their behavior. That's what's really going on here. It is practically easier to cut off your foreskin and force others to do so than to die to sin and take up your cross and be crucified in the crucifixion of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Because to take up your cross, you have to deny yourself and regard, as Paul did, any act of piety you perform as skrivala, which literally in Greek means shit. Okay? No joke, that's the best translation of it, so I'm not going to shy away from it just because it's a vulgar word. For reference, that's from uh, Philippians 2.8. But that's the key, right? You have to deny yourself and take up your cross, and what's being crucified in that situation is your ego. You have to nail your ego to the cross, and nobody wants to do that. That's the hard part. And it's not a problem that Jews have. Okay, this is a problem that Christians have too. Jews have it, Christians have it. Muslims have it, Buddhists have it. Atheists have it, agnostics have it. Everybody has it because we all have a mighty ego. <laughs> and the, the, the more influenced by Greek philosophy we are, the bigger our ego is. And the, uh, the thicker the foreskin of our heart is the heart being the seat of our intellect in the ancient understanding. So it takes effort, guys. But if you're as good as dead, as Abraham was, then there's hope for you. So the key takeaway here is not to rely on your own outward piety. Submit to God and his statutes. Deny yourself, and most importantly, serve your neighbor, expecting nothing in return. This is what makes you a true son or daughter of Abraham. Peace and love to you all. We'll see you next week.